perfection. I'm sending out weird uh, chemical signals to you over the air as to communicate my salutations. <laughs> Welcome to Last Refuge of the Incompetent. I, I am Root Node Gall, and I'm. <laughs> I-, I am uh, Leaf Node Moses. <laughs> I'm Ted. I'm not a node. Well, except, oh. except a self-facilitating media node. <laughs> and uh, we've got a special guest today. Uh, hello, hello again. Welcome back to the show. Uh, liker of things, uh, knower of plants, <laughs> Marissa Wilson. Marissa, what part of the plant are you? I'm the bud. <laughs> Ooh. We're all friends here. Y'all <laughs> Oh, why are we talking about plants Listeners, well, that's because our theme this week is sentient plants. When plants attack slash gain consciousness, (laughs) or do they already have it? I don't know. We're going to talk about that later. Do plants think things? What do they think? Let's find out. Exactly. There's so much music. Ted, did you see that list I curated? Yeah, look at it. Based off of an article (laughs) (laughs) that I read. But there's a lot of music that people wrote for plants to listen to. In particular, this guy, Mort Garson, got himself a Moog in the 1970s. And he made an album called Mother Earth's Plantasia for plants to listen to. Stevie Wonder, you guys know that guy? (laughs) He wrote a whole album that apparently is Solange's favorite album <laughs> called Journey Through the Secret Life of Plants. And, uh, I, you know, we're going to mention Little Shop of Horrors, and I, I like Little Shop of Horrors, so. I, I was Seymour in high school. Oh, in when you in the play? <laughs> yeah, just, just every day uh, during Cut. cosplay. Yeah, I can't, you know, can't pretend I wasn't very nerdy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, have you seen Little Shop of Horrors, Marissa? Yeah, I think the last time I saw it was in high school, when my high school performed it. Nice. There you go. But yeah, I I know the Plantasia album and the Stevie Wonder album. Uh, I haven't heard the stuff that uh, is made with the molecular frequency of plants. Sounds like it's probably pretty boring, but... uh, Yeah, yeah. Also, it's it's, uh, B. Asherah's music for growing, specifically for nurturing hemp plants. Um, so <laughs> sounds like a bunch of hippie nonsense. <laughs> there's also a, there's an Australian band called the Triffids. Probably play a little bit of that. Oh, nice. That, no idea. Uh, Marissa said we'll, we'll be talking a little bit later about this movie called Little Joe, and you said the album, the the soundtrack is good, right, Marissa? Uh, it, I'm not sure it's so much of a soundtrack as just you know a lot of intense drums every now and then. It's not like thoughtful songs maybe that like yeah well you you should listen to the show that aired a week ago there's a lot of just like is that the solaris soundtrack that you're looking right now yeah great soundtrack (laughs) yeah 
Yeah, a little joke. There's a lot of like woodblock percussion and stuff. Oh yeah, every time building up. Every time there's like a frame on Little Joe the plant, it's like, and you and it makes you feel very uncomfortable. Deepest pool of deepest blue shall swim to you. Morning never waits for you. Shall wait for you. And the stars. Hey there, everybody! It's Gall again. As always, interrupting to remind you that if you would like to listen to the episode without all the music edited out, then why don't you go to our website, lastrefugepod.com, and it tells you all the neat ways that you can listen to all the music that we talk about that we can't play on a podcast for legal reasons. And if you don't care, please enjoy the wonderful sounds of Focus Bird. Okay, so this theme of sentience in plants is an often covered theme in science fiction, in speculative fiction, and I think we should start with the like the number one most famous. <laughs> the number one uh, most mean, famous. Does that mean the ants? I know they're not on the outline, but you know. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, What's pretty mysteries. Yeah, tell us about the ants. Oh, from Lord of the Rings, they're just old trees that walk around. Or deals, they're really slow. And the funniest thing is that the the women trees got so fed up with how boring the men trees were that they left and formed their own uh, race. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. That was the best part of the ants. <laughs> <laughs> um, correct. <laughs> but Those we're, not are, <laughs> we're not talking about the ants. No, we're talking about Day of the Triffids. 1951 post-apocalyptic novel by English science fiction writer John Wyndham. He published it to moderate acclaim. It wasn't pretty, it wasn't very well known, but like many years later, it became this kind of classic of science fiction touted by the Times of London as having all the reality of a vividly realized nightmare. So the back cover synopsis is back cover synopsis I'm, I'm doing it I'm, I'm making sure that that happens every episode so Bill Mason bandages over his wounded eyes misses the most spectacular meteor- meteorite shower England has ever seen removing his bandages the next morning he finds masses of sightless people wandering the city he soon meets Gisela another lucky person who has retained her sight and together they leave the city aware that the safe familiar world that they knew a mere 24 hours before is gone forever but to survive in the post-apocalyptic world one must survive the triffids strange plants that years before began appearing all over the world well triffids can grow to over seven feet tall pull their roots from the ground to walk and kill a man with one quick lash of their poisonous stingers with society in shambles they are now poised to prey on humankind Wyndham chillingly anticipates biowarfare and mass destruction 50 years before their realization in this prescient account of cold war paranoia Thoughts, Moses? Good one. Yeah, I was surprised, you know, reading the book, 
at how like the the writing style is very much uh, some guy telling you a crazy story in a pub. It's yeah. Very, yeah, it's a very British. You won't believe what happened next. Kind of. And the book does get pretty like seriously tragic, but also it still retains that tone. I listened to it as an audiobook, and it's like a. I don't usually usually really dislike audiobooks because I read faster than they talk, mm-hmm. and I really like this one because it's just this like really good British actor that's like doing the voices really well. And it's very engaging. Um, and I got it for free somewhere, so Score. you could probably find it for free as well. <laughs> I should say, it's not, like, explicitly told as a pub story, like, he doesn't address the reader directly, but that is, this is what it feels like as you're reading it. Yeah, it's fun. I, for some inexplicable, I really like it. I really, really liked it. And there's a lot of issues there, like, Would you, would you care to inexplicate? <laughs> <laughs> well... You know, like, it's a 1950s classic male sci-fi from a British guy, okay? So there's a lot of weird female, like, uh, representations that are slightly uncomfortable, but it's very charming, the book, and I like the characters that he, like, creates, and there's this character, Coker, Cocker, who's, who's my favorite. He's so good. He's just this, like... I guess working man who's like taught himself to code switch with the like British middle class and so like he, you know he's like talking about code switching without really realizing he's talking about code switching but like code switching through classes and um, I don't know that's good it's a good book that's all you're getting from me what else <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's good it goes through a lot of well it's about the uh, society collapsing and you know it's called Day of the Triffids and these plants are part of the book it's it's not really about that them it's it's a it's about a, a society trying to rebuild itself and so yeah it's a it's a sociological book we get a bunch of different groups of people like oh we need to help as many people as we can or we need to find for ourselves and everyone who can't survive needs to go die and that kind of stuff this the like there's also ambiguity in how the triffids came to be and also like how this weird meteorite slash not meteorite shower like made everybody blind so yeah if that's really related to the triffids or not yeah so the i guess the like speculation is that the triffids or the accepted theory is that so this guy is narrating it is like a triffid expert and the the theory is that the triffids were like bioengineered nuclear engineered by um secretly by Russian scientists and accidentally got spread around the world. Um, and they're cultivated because even though, you know, they're these like possibly thinking really Somewhat poisonous, dangerous, dangerous plant. Yeah. They're cultivated because they're like better than, than oil, right? Like they're, yeah, they produce a, a highly nutritious oil. Like that's what they were engineered for because there was a grand, uh, overpopulation problem on earth. So they, there were already the world was wasn't doing so well with food and uh, uh, the threats of nuclear obliteration. Yeah, so then you've got this like world that has these weird plants that exist and it's going okay until one day there's this inexplicable light show that makes everybody blind except for a few people that were like not looking at it at the time. And now a bunch of blind people are wandering around and there's like crazy big poisonous plants that are you know. Attacking trying people. to eat them yeah 
Uh, the, my few my few notes that like stuck out to me are mostly that it's like such a British story. Like the first thing this guy does when he gets out yeah. of the hospital is try try to get as drunk as he can. Yeah. <laughs> Fine. Go to the pub across the street. Oh yeah, he goes to a pub and like the owner of the pub is already getting like suicidally drunk. And just, like, picking out bottles blindly, getting upset that they're gin, and throwing them against the wall. Shit again. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it's very British. It's a very British story. There's this, like, a reference, like, a lot of people think, like, oh, okay, we'll just hunker down and try to survive, and then the Americans will come and save us. And this guy's, like, you guys, the Americans are not coming to save you. Like, they're also dealing with the same. This happened to everyone. My favorite thing about Wyndham's bio is that he'd been writing, like, pulpy sci-fi for American sci-fi magazines since the 30s uh, under an assumed name, and then uh, he released this under his own name, and, like, all the sort of promotion, none of the promotion for it mentioned that he had been an author for decades. It's like, that's not even mentioned. Just, He's a new talent. There's a few things that kind of make you uncomfortable, like, um, at some point... This Josella character is like, well, all women want babies. So <laughs> you're just like, all right, Josella. Yeah. And um, there's like a weird poly- polygamy implication for this one future, this one group of people that's like, the only way we're going to survive is if, if the men work hard and the women have babies with whoever, whatever man wants to put it in them. <laughs> the goals will be popular for Earth. Also, the evil guy, there's like an evil guy towards the end who has just has to be a red-headed man. Oh yeah, that's so rude. <laughs> yeah. Well, as I said, I didn't get it that far into the book, but I did find it interesting that there's a character early on who's sort of the first, who's been studying the Triffids, and he's sort of the first person who speculates that they're sort of intelligent. And I found it interesting that the way he talks about plant intelligence He's actually pretty close to the way actual biologists studying plant intelligence now talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, like when he gets challenged, who are you saying they're like conscious? Like mm-hmm. as smart as us? And I'm like, no, they don't have to be. They right. just have to be able to do particular things. Um, mm-hmm. And like, yeah, he's de- he definitely measures intelligence in terms of problem solving in a way that actual some actual scientists do now. Yeah, I mean, there's this, like, we'll talk about it later in this episode, but there's this whole debate between plant biologists and plant scientists about the meaning of intelligence and, like, this very, like, absurd... I mean, everybody's debating about the meaning of intelligence, but there's this absurd, like, you cannot say that plants are intelligent because only animals can have intelligence or only animals can have some sort of consciousness. And it's like, all right, could you just relax with the meaning of words for a second like (laughs) anyway um open your plant mind a bit (laughs) yeah (laughs) he also speculates that one character or he's allude this is why there's a theory out there about day of the triffids that the triffids somehow caused this meteor shower or whatever um and there's allusions to it throughout the book and at some point, this character in the beginning, the scientist who is talking about their intelligence, says they would really do well if there was a bunch of blind humans around. Something like that. I can't or, remember. Yeah, like yeah. The, yeah, when they're stinging people, they always aim for the eyes. Like, they know yeah. that. 
disables the human the fastest. I think I don't think this is apocryphal. I think this is true that he was actually inspired very closely by the War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells, and that Wells's working title for War of the Worlds was the Day of the Tripods, and then that's where Day of the Triffids came from, which it's very it's similar. Lame. Yeah, and also Wyndham worked as a, a fire watcher during the Blitz. And so he kind of, like, used his witnessing of the destruction of London from the rooftops and the descriptions of, of just, like, a, an uncannily silent London in his description of London when a bunch of people were suddenly blind. Although, I mean, really? If you were suddenly blind, would you just kill yourself right away? Like, that's literally all that happens to people. Yeah, that, that is uh, pretty disturbing. <laughs> early in the book, that's the pattern. People always say, I'm blind, I give up on life, it's over. And I guess part of it is that they also notice that since everyone has been suddenly blinded, that uh, society's collapsing. So, oh, society's collapsing? I give up on life, it's over. But, hey, that's the way Wyndham wanted to do it. <laughs> what? I, and this also, this book, I, I feel like it was pretty influential in a lot of apocalyptic fiction. Like, some guy wakes up in a hospital and suddenly the, and realizes the world has ended while he was asleep. That's happened in plenty of stories. Yeah, I think um, 28 Days Later is inspired by it. Mm -hmm. At least the waking up in a hospital and everyone's gone part. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and the whole book is, you know, first, all right, I'm sca scavenging for, uh, for supplies and I'm looking for other survivors and we're slowly going to band together and figure out what kind of society to make. And, it's yeah. a sort of zombie movie plot structure. Pre-zombie. Yeah, for yes, sure. 1951. Yeah, and um, just if you don't like reading, there are many. <laughs> there are I'm many. To the right show. <laughs> <laughs> there are many film adaptations for you. So there's uh, the first one came out in 1962. There's a TV series from 1981, a TV series from 2009, and a radio drama. Yeah, I think they're like BBC miniseries. So like somewhere between a TV series and a TV movie. Not too much. Uh, not not. I didn't notice any racism in this one, but there's plenty of classism, like classic oh, British sure, classism. Yeah. Although he does kind of subvert it in some sense or make a comment of it with the Coker character, I think. Uh, yeah, yeah, and you know, the women are not great. <laughs> yeah, one either... character aspect of the main woman is that like, she wrote a body sex uh, memoir and she got really famous for it. And now she's just getting so she's really sick of people bringing it up. Like, yeah, I wrote it for fun, whatever. <laughs> yeah, I'm Josella. Yeah, they're Josella. either like they're either like you know kind of these like beautiful love interests, or they are uh, older. What's the word? Shrewy women. Like, what's that character? Duvet. 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 I don't remember. Oh, her name. oh, is she the one There's, who's like kind of the the matronly uh, yeah head yeah. of the nunnery, head of a nunnery, pretty much. Yeah, basically. Oh, also, right. in addition to all these other things, eventually people start succumbing to a really sudden plague. Yeah. Oh, this this is this is incubating way too fast to be typhoid or something crazy. So great, just on top of everything else, <laughs> plague. Yeah, there's a lot of like inexplicable calamities happening to this world. Yeah, everything at once. When but it it's a fun pours. book. When it rains, it pours. Yeah. yeah, when it when it rains, it rains meteors that blind you. 
it, it pours meteors that blind you. So we're talking about this whole genre of like almost like campy horror movies that are all about killer plants because there's a lot of them. Uh, my personal favorite, which could you consider it horror? Is it horror? Is Little Shop of Horrors? It's in the title, so oh. yes. <laughs> the title. I mean the the uh, the original one is the not that the musical is based on. Yes, was like a scary or you know the Roger Corman one, nineteen sixty film. Yeah, yeah. Oh, for I those of you that, seen that one. I haven't seen that one either. Ted, have you seen it? No. Ah. Should have. <laughs> yeah. So if anybody's we curious, do, we got to do a triple feature: the original, The Fly; the original, The Thing. <laughs> oh yeah, Little Shop of Horrors. That'll be fun. The original Wicker Man. Pause right now and watch all those. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be back in eight hours. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so 1960 film directed by Roger Corman, followed by a musical from 1982, then followed by a 1986 film adaptation of the musical called Little Shop of Horrors, then apparently followed by a 1991 French-American TV series spinoff called Little Shop. That's, why? Why though? <laughs> why is that necessary? <laughs> Excellent movie. I don't think we need to explain the plot of it because uh, yeah, there's a totally eclipse of the sun, and uh, a plant, a nerdy low life plant keeper finds a weird plant, and then it grows so big it starts uh, begging him for blood, and uh, so he feeds it all the people it doesn't like. It's great. Some amazing acting by Rick, Rick Moranis, Moranis and Steve yes. Martin. As, as a sadistic dentist. What's the female... That actress is really cool, too. I forget her name. Oh, shoot. I forget who plays Audrey. Mm-hmm. Ellen Green. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, her performance is incredible. I think she was also... I think she played that same role in the um, Broadway musical. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. And then there's Attack of the Killer Tomatoes as well, which I assumed was just like a regular... I thought it was just a regular horror film, but apparently it's, it is a parody film of of B mm-hmm. of B movies, which I didn't know that. You know, a bunch of tomatoes just become sentient. There's yeah, nothing too deep about that one. It's, it's, a, joke. No. it's, it's a joke that they carried out into a full feature film. It was great. Yeah. yeah. And eventually it came out a TV show. The cartoon. Oh, Did yes, you you're right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Came out in 1978. And uh, apparently had a very small budget. No. <laughs> uh, Moses, did you post this? The Lonesome Death of Jordy Farrell? Or was that Ted? I didn't watch it. Moses oh, yeah, was yeah, talking yeah. about it. That is part of a... Uh, oh, what was it? Creep Show? Was that what it's from? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, an like, anthology of a bunch of horror vignettes. And this was uh, Stephen King. Yes, the author plays uh, some guy, some hick sitting around in his trailer and a meteor uh, crashes in his backyard and uh, he goes like, what the hell is that? Weird green moss starts sprouting from this meteor and it takes over his whole farm and eventually starts growing on him and it takes over his whole body. It's pretty cool. And uh, it eventually takes over the earth so that's it. The end. A meteor (laughs) crashes and a moss eats the entire earth's biosphere. Do you guys think that like writers and filmmakers do this like sentient plant thing because 
plants are actually like if you if you ti- if you watch time lapse of plants, like they are so creepy and alien. Have you guys seen that life episode of just the plants one? I used to show it to my students all the time, and it's like. It's so creepy to see like vines climbing or just yeah. like how much movement these plants have. Like they're that's it's ripe for weird, airy, eerie, scary stuff. And it's I think a lot of it is trying to take us humans down a peg. We think we're so mm-hmm. cool, there's so much hubris when nature could just turn us off at any moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Yeah, there's a there's someone in that that New Yorker article um, who I think suggests that we're sort of resentful that we're so dependent on plants yep. um, for our subsistence that we kind of um, yeah, denigrate them because of that. I think he says, we're willing to accept artificial intelligence because computers are our creations. And so reflect our own intelligence back at us. They are also our dependents. Unlike plants, if we were to vanish tomorrow, the plants would be fine. But if the plants vanished, our dependence on plants breeds a contempt for them. In this somewhat topsy-turvy view, plants remind us of our weakness. Ted, watch out. There's a tendril reaching for your forehead right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for the listener, so that is exactly what Ted's screen looks like. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the animated version of Attack of the Killer Tomatoes actually ran for two seasons on Fox Kids. And uh, it's about a mad scientist named Putrid T. Gangrene. <laughs> <laughs> And Maurice LaMarche does, like, half the voices. <laughs> yeah, um, he, was, he was on every cartoon in the 90s and today, even. Who are the good guys? Well, there's Chad Finletter, <laughs> Tara Boomdier, Wilbur fin- Finletter, who's a veteran of the Great Tomato War, uh, leader of the Killer Tomato Task Force and owner of Finletter's Pizza Palace. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that makes so much sense. Uh, yeah, there's a like a a friendly tomato, um, FT. Yeah. <laughs> kind of, is he kind of like Slimer from Ghostbusters, maybe? <laughs> yeah, I guess there's. I guess two of the characters are like failed experiments that came out nice. Wikipedia corner <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> with. T- Dead. <laughs> and also, Tomato Guy, who appears in every episode and shouts tomato, causing everyone in the area to panic. <laughs> Can't believe they couldn't uh, get more than two seasons out of this concept. Yeah. Alright guys, we're getting a little bit more contemporary now. We're talking about a book that came out in 2018 by a woman named Sue Burke called Semiosis. Take it away, Moses. Yeah, this is a book about... Actually, you know what? It's time that I give a little confession on this show. I know this is our 14th episode or whatever, but I uh, hate reading the back cover synopses of books before I read <laughs> I'm happy to read them after I've read the book already, but I've just been burned so many times by like, oh, what's this book about? And I read the back cover synopsis and I'm like, well, why did you tell me all that? Now, like, <laughs> clearly the I author will... was trying to, like, build a story out of these elements and then you just told him in the worst way instead of, anyway. <laughs> uh, still, so I will describe semiosis in a way that still, I don't know, doesn't blow anything. I mean, but, the past 14 episodes have been us blowing Books. Yeah, we spoil everything we, we talk spoil about. everything. <laughs> and I'm okay with that. But I feel like you can't get blindsided by us. Like, mm. We say we're going to talk about the entire book in depth. 
Whereas if I'm in a bookstore and I pick up a book saying, well, I just want to know a little blurb, and then they just tell me everything, including the mm. things that the author wanted to be a cool reveal. I'll be honest with you. Sometimes cool. I will read the entire plot summary before I read a book. <laughs> yeah, I, I recognize that this is a personal thing. I'm not judging anyone <laughs> who loves back cover synopses or loves reading uh, Wikipedia summaries of <laughs> books or movies or TV before they read the whole thing. That's that's totally cool. It's fine. I just, my personal preference is I'm never going to read the back of a book before I read the book. Again. All right, anyway, go for it. The, Semiosis is a book set in the near future. A, a group of uh, humans, 50 humans, leave a terrible uh, hellish Earth to go start a colony on, on another planet. And they land there, and in this, this lush planet that they, they call their colony and the planet Pax, because they want to leave behind the Earth full of conflict and war and make a totally peaceful existence. Uh, and they land on a new planet, and it's lush. There's lots of strange flora and fauna. The thing I liked about the beginning of the book, where they're talking about colonizing the planet, or trying to start establishing a colony, is just, they totally blow it at first. Like, everything goes wrong. And I love stories about astronauts just screwing up. <laughs> and eventually, they find out that uh, there's a plant with some intelligence to it, and so they have to learn how to live with that plant. And the book is told over several generations so the original landing party, and then their children, and then their children's children. And so we see how this society evolves over time. And a lot of cool stuff happens that I won't spoil. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, my favorite part is once you start hearing the get the point of view of the intelligent plant, the bamboo plant, mm-hmm. that was, that was as soon, one, the first time that happens, which it takes a little while into the book, and then you're like, whoa, I'm getting this the bamboo's point of view? This is awesome. <laughs> this is so cool. <laughs> and all the descriptions of how the you know, this giant bamboo organism, one organism, consciousness, how he has to, he's trying to domesticate the humans, and also how he has to talk to all these other plants to help him out as well, and all the other plants. Like, the tulips are dumb but helpful, while the pineapples are stubborn, and the locust wood trees are just real jerks, notoriously <laughs> aggressive. Uh, and so all the plant negotiations that he has to do to try to live is, is great. For me, the most compelling part of this book is, like, these humans went to this planet to try to have a nice peaceful coexistence and then they end up finding that there's still a lot of conflict in the plant level but the fact that they can communicate with this bamboo this intelligent bamboo that they rely on like the fact that there's a direct channel between you and your environment and you can negotiate with it like mm-hmm. that's that i found really compelling and nice like wow what if we could actually talk to all the trees and <laughs> and uh and they could talk back to a, us and they could talk back and we could mutually agree on a society but of course you can't even do that among humans so why would we have better luck with other life forms yeah as as the title suggests of the two books like semiosis and interference the like the the central theme is communication and signaling and symbolizing even more than it is plants um but yeah, so she's like, a translator by profession. So, like, I think intentionally she was like, I want to make this book about communication. And so you can see that. And, uh, there's another, and there's also another non human animal species, intelligent animal species that is from another planet entirely that um, oh, is yeah. central to the book. And so there's also that level of communicating between the two species and the glass makers. Mm-hmm. And then. And, and in a lot of the ways, the bamboo becomes kind of a translator between them that mm-hmm. um, kind of both complicates and facilitates 
that interspecies communication. Are we calling him Stevland or Steve Land? <laughs> I think that I think it's Stevland, but I think it's much cooler to say we encountered this giant, super intelligent plant species, and we decided to call him Steve. Because <laughs> I. I just read it as Steve the entire time. <laughs> I pronounce it as Stevland in my head. But... Marissa, what do you think? Um, so I only read the first of the two. So maybe maybe it changes a little bit in the second one. I thought it was interesting. Like you said, I actually thought that the the elements around language were more interesting than like the interpersonal. I, I don't know. I, I wasn't super compelled by by the relationships or each time because it also jumped between narrators each chapter. Yeah. Each time I was beginning to get into like r- the relationships, it changed before I re- ever felt like particularly satisfied. I, it, it was interesting. It like definitely all of those all of those things that they're discovering about plants right now, intelligence, all that stuff. It definitely is going into that, and it's a cool explanation for folks. Some of it, like I don't know, studying biology, they focus a lot on trying to like create balance in this book. But in biology, we are always taught that balance equals death. Mm. Um, yeah, steady like, state is nothing <laughs> means nothing happens. Yeah, steady steady state is like not a good thing in in systems. But I mean, also coming from the world of agriculture, like absolutely controlled by plants, where mm-hmm. like yeah, I planted the seed, but then I had to go around doing all the work of killing, cultivating, the yeah, yeah, and killing the weeds. Um, it's also interesting that like they're they're choosing one plant to be friends with but clearly all of these plants have intelligence they have no problem like killing the weeds in their field but they you know feel so deeply for this one kind of just like if if plants have any level of intelligence why are we concerned about the one that's most intelligent it's kind of like people who are who won't eat pork because pigs are smart but they're totally happy eating like cows and chicken they like also have some level of intelligence there's a quote in that article. So we've been referencing this article, and it's a New Yorker article written by Michael Pollan in nineteen in 2013. <laughs> <laughs> time is a flat circle, guys. So Michael <laughs> Pollan went back in time. Anyway, it's called The Intelligent Plant, and there's a quote in there where he's, like, talking to this one guy. I think it's Mancuso who's, like, this one Italian scientist who's, like, really into the idea of plant intelligence, and he's, like, about he's talking about plant consciousness so oh so this isn't even mancuso maybe there's this experiment that they've done where when a plant is injured or stressed they produce they produce um ethylene which is a chemical that works as an an anesthetic an an oh god say that (laughs) word for me anesthetic on animals thank you and so there's you know michael Pollen talks all about like ethical eating and all that stuff. And so he's like, So are you telling me that plants can feel pain? And this guy Belusco Belusca, he's like, Well, I mean, maybe. Like so if plants are conscious, then yeah, they, they feel pain. And if you don't feel pain, you ignore danger and you don't survive. So pain is adaptive. But like the reality is is that we live in the world where we have to eat other organisms, so I mean, you know, what are you going to do? This was me, like, high thoughts 
in high school, right? <laughs> like, I'm a vegetarian, but what if plants can feel too? <laughs> I mean, according to some scientists, they can't. So, yep. I don't know. It's an interesting thought. Rough, rough day for all these vegans out here. <laughs> uh, did, did anyone read ever read uh, the Roald Dahl short story, The Sound Machine? Yeah. That's a good one. And it's very, it's a very short story. It's just a guy who's working on a uh, machine that can detect frequencies that humans can't hear. And he's tuning into it one day and he hears all these little yips. And like, what is going on? And he realizes that uh, his neighbor is cutting her roses. And every time she cuts one, he hears a little yip. And so he like zooms into that sound. And is like, oh my god, a plant! Then he goes across the street to this tree to do another experiment on it, a old tree, and he hits it with a, an axe. And hears instead of a yip, it's like a loud groan that's clearly pain. Like the yips could have just been surprised. I don't know, but this one, this is this tree is suffering. And so he immediately he loses his mind and he calls his friend to say, "Get some iodine. We got to patch up this tree." <laughs> like bandage it as if it were a it's like there, there. everything's gonna be okay I'll bed I swear I'll never hit you again the end <laughs> <laughs> yeah that article talks about ethylene being an anesthetic but in the book uh, the locust wood trees use ethylene as like a weapon um, yeah pain. so someone's got the science wrong here I don't well, know what it is well, it's, <laughs> it's, it's Aesthetic for animals? It's probably okay. the person that's not a scientist <laughs> who is super... <laughs> Apparently there's some criticism about her science in the book, but... Ah. I mean, there's... she obviously did research about, like, mm-hmm. chemicals that plants create. Um, there's, I mean, it's not an unprepared book, even if she got certain things wrong. Yeah, one of the things that I thought has, like, a really clear connection, so, you know... So Steve, our friend Steve, he's like Steve able Bamboo. to, yeah, Steve Bamboo, he's like able to like communicate to all these other plants to, you know, kind of do this back and forth, like tit for tat sort of situation. Like, I'll give you this if you give me that. And um, like that kind of, that happens in a forest, which yeah, is really said, cool. Like the, he says um, that this is how plants have negotiated for billions of years, uh, like maintaining pollination patterns, like and uh, yeah. negotiating for sunlight rights. Right. Since, <laughs> Which yeah, is like... we been talking about this forever. Yeah. I mean, and it, that's how things happen. So in this article, he talks about how in a forest, uh, the roots of a plant are able to recognize whether, when they're going around, whether another tree is a stranger or, or themselves. And if it's a stranger, they're able to recognize if it's kin or like a complete stranger, or sorry, themselves or... Or someone new, and if it's new, then is it kin, or is it, you know, someone completely strange? And then they're able to, like, cooperate. So, like, fir trees were using a fungal web to trade nutrients with paper bark perch trees over the course of a season, and an evergreen species will tie it over the deciduous one when it has sugars to spare, and, like, that's what's happening in Yeah, that's semiosis. the real world. That part's yeah. not in the book. <laughs> yeah, that's not in the book. That's what, it, that's what inspired the book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, that, that's the interesting thing. I mean, a sort of symbiotic relationship between between different kingdoms of life, like trees yeah. and a and fungal networks, is almost like an alien symbiotic relationship already. Um, so it almost seemed like a missed opportunity where 
how it functions in the book isn't even explained. It's just the plants are doing it directly or something. Um, so yeah, there's no, there's like a fung, funguses exist on this plant because people get fungal diseases in their lungs, but their role in the, this like network of communication between plants is never mentioned. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In semiosis. Yeah. Yeah. But plants on our world also act to control humans, or not humans, but animals, well, maybe humans, but animals in like a more general sense than even just like agricultural and humans and plants. But like, well, you know the whole story of of poison ivy, right, Marissa? Do you know that no, one? No, I actually don't know the whole story of poison. So, so poison ivy is like a frontier plant for poison ivy is like an ally of a forest. Mm-hmm. And it it is an enemy of, of the plains. And a human being is wants a plains land and doesn't want a forest because that's how we've adapted like to best mm-hmm. cultivate our societies. And because a forest is big and scary and you, and it's not as easy to maintain. And so the reason that like in this is a theory, <laughs> but what the theory is is based on this idea that why do we have so much poison ivy and poison oak? in places where humans are and where humans are newly developing is because poison ivy is trying to return these like plains areas back to the forest because there's this, it thrives in a forest area. And so like, if you take over this plains area, eventually the forest will grow. Um, So in some sense it's, it is controlling humans. Um, Is poison ivy deep in the forest too? Or is it? No, it's on the outer, it's on the outskirts. It's not deep. It's like, it's yeah. It's like yeah. successional forest. Yes, exactly. Like successional forest. Yes. 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 Interesting. I was thinking about how um, cherry trees excrete uh, like dew drops of, of nectar in order to get ants to come to eat the aphids that are harming the, the cherry trees. Like there are a lot of examples out there of these mechanisms that plants have created to get things to do their bidding for them. Yeah, one of the inter- entertaining parts of semiosis is that Steveland and the other plants like talk about domesticating animals, like having servant animals. And at the beginning of the book, Steveland thinks that animals are pretty dumb. Um, he definitely thinks of them as like a lower form of life and just like mm-hmm. too, like because they have short lives, they're too cyclical and just too unpredictable. And, like, as he becomes, uh, develops a more complex relationship with the humans and, like, becomes a citizen of their city, he develops a respect for them and learns from, learns things from them. But, like, he still definitely looks at them as, like, a form of life that he has to protect and kind of manage. Um, And that never really goes away. Um, Yeah, the big tension of the book is, like, at what point is Stevlin the bamboo organism going to declare himself dictator of the humans and control their life completely because he obviously knows what's best for them. Like, uh, like he, he wants to outlaw alcohol because humans are clearly abusing it, and the humans like, no, no, man, we're, <laughs> we're keeping our cool truffle wine. Yeah, yeah Stevlin's kind of a fascist, just, <laughs> just to be clear. So, yeah, well, that, I thought, would be like... It would make a lot of sense if, like, well, this is just one huge organism. So if you're lonely, or if you're if you're one person, like, you're not a society, you're one person, and mm-hmm. then you encounter some social beings, you're, you're going to try to 
yeah, be a fascist to them, control them completely. But then later in the book, we find out that he has been talking to all the other plants. And so he does have his own, there is a sociology to the plant world in, in Semiosis. He calls uh, himself yep. a social being, even. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, he talks about how lonely he is and that how he, you know, he talks to all the other plants. They're nowhere near the intelligence level of his bamboo. And also that there used to be other bamboo organisms, but uh, they, they were so violent that they kind of, they killed, killed each other off completely. And the snow, the snow vine is also a bamboo relative, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Like a warring, dumb, savage. I think that's how yeah. Steve Can sees it. <laughs> I just want to appreciate real quick that I think it's the pineapple takes every opportunity to say that they've been bamboozled. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there is humor to these to these anthropomorphizing these plants, which is kind of fun. Yeah, and <laughs> there's a moment that feels like almost exactly the opposite of that um, Stanislav Lem short story where uh, to invent a poem-making robot, he has to simulate the entire universe, which is that Stevlin just grows a humor root and yes. can suddenly <laughs> make jokes and understand human like. Do you need, yeah. like, any context? Like, could an entirely different kind of life understand all of the background for, like, what human beings find funny or not? The answer is yes. He just needs to grow a root, a grow a root for it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then he's like, the locust tree also did that, apparently. Like, they're telling jokes all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Which is obviously a narrative device to, like, allow there to be jokes from the narrator. No, well, I, mean, I think the, it also shows how much language he's acquired, right? That mm-hmm. if he's so engrossed in the world, if, like, maybe he didn't need to create a whole universe in order to be able to tell jokes, but he's become so engrossed over the last 70 years that he's able to finally make jokes in a new language. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it did take him 70 years of engaging with the humans in order to get to the level where he could understand what... The, I mean, the, the joke about that is that the human leader says, maybe you need to grow a humor root, and she says it as a joke, but he didn't have a humor root, so he didn't get it, so he started to grow one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not necessarily inherently any more ridiculous that a plant could understand humor than it could understand any other abstract ideas. Mm. It's just kind of the point where it strikes you, like, all right, I just have to, like, accept this. Because, um, I mean, otherwise, the... I mean, it's a very, it's a pretty inventive, creative book, and it does a relatively good job of trying to get into, like, the worldview of a plant, like, a very different yeah. um, sort of life, but there's still, like, limits on how much you can get outside of, like, a human mindset in the written word, so. Yeah. I think reading it as a person who works with plants... I found it more, I I really was like, oh, this is a translator writing about translation more than it was like a biologist that was getting in depth about the way plants work. You know, I think she did the amount of research that she needs to do to be able to like try and talk about like what first contact with the plant would be like. But at the same time, I think what was fun for her, and I think she talks about it, like even naming the book Semiosis, I think like for her, it's about how do you, communicate with a with in a different language Mm -hmm. um yeah and i mean she 
she puts a lot of effort into sort of speculating about how this, how intelligence would develop in a very different kind of biological mechanism but then in the second book she kind of gives up and is like nope these plants have neurons by the way all of them have neurons um, yeah <laughs> unlike yeah. on earth yeah um, and i mean in the second book you also uh it becomes clear how much prevailing technological ideas influence um fiction and how we think in general so much but like computers and networks are definitely influences how she creates imagines this plant yes and also i mean in the second book stevlum starts to like interact with computer networks and control um helicopters and stuff yeah i think she's going under the basis that like plants generate electricity and so yeah. she's like really running with that yeah and yeah, by the time by the time you've gotten to that point in the book, it's not like it's not objectionable. It's not like, oh, this is a, a yeah. bridge too far. I, my <laughs> no. my belief can no longer be suspended. Yeah, um, disbelief can no longer be suspended. And yeah, you're right. There's like a big trend now. I don't know if you guys have been to like a well, not recently, but pre when we were allowed to go to places. If you've been to like a museum, there's always this like look at this plant making music show. Have you guys seen that where people like connect electrodes to plants and you can like make, you can like listen to the music that plants are making. So I think that, that, that existing, like I could see how she started to develop this plant's ability to literally control all computers at all times. Gabe, <laughs> <laughs> well, you, and uh, you mentioned earlier that the bam, Stevlin's bamboo species like, used to have a society, and then that crashed. Um, and really all three of the main species in the book are experiencing, like, in a period after the collapse of their civilization, at least on that planet. Mm-hmm. Um, so the yeah, all three are sort of building their culture up again together. We didn't talk that much about the glassmakers, but I really like them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're good alien. They're good, pretty good aliens. Yeah, they're, they're alien fine. enough. To, yeah, uh, they're insectoid creatures that um, I mean they have like a simple written language, which is how the humans first communicate with the plant bamboo, mm-hmm. and they're and not in writing. They're split between like clicks and whistles on the one hand, but and communicating by scent on the other hand, which again is like a dual semiotic system. Yeah, and it's how. Stevland is able to communicate with them and all that scent stuff factors in greatly. Yeah, I mean, they're... I kind of wondered all along, like, why are they even vocalizing if they could just be producing scent? Like, maybe... Yeah, between yeah. themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And also, like, early on when they're talking about how they're just, like, really unpaid, like, I, I couldn't tell if that was, like, as we got further in, if they were just producing those smells because they were communicating so much, or... It seems that it would, like, hygiene would be really important to you the way you communicated was through smell, right? Isn't well, they, there... Yeah, oh. Well, they I also think... just... Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they also discussed that that, um, that nomadic group is really, like, unha- it's sick. They're sick yeah. and, uh, and, like, starving. 
So they're probably producing like the fear and pain sense like constantly in excess. Um, yeah, that's and, what that's what I got is that or yeah, that's the I thought that was the realization she was going for. It's like, oh, it's not that they were dirty, it's that they're just constantly giving off the fear and anxiety sense. I also got that they they had like lost like a lot of like they were an advanced culture that for whatever reason disappeared yeah, from the civilization and have lost all that yeah through a hundred years of malnutrition they've lost not just like physical health but mental health too yeah a lot of that like institutional knowledge they they and that's and that's a common trope this idea like that's even in day of the triffids they talk about like well if we don't if we do not maintain our current civilization we are going to return to barbarism <laughs> and that's like I think what happens with the glassmakers in some sense. Well, it's interesting too because the the newer generation of humans can't remember what Earth was like, except yeah. through like the few stories they have, and then you know. The second book, not to give too much away, is kind of about what happens if humans from old Earth come to this new settlement, and what kind of culture clash exists with these like new humans on packs and and the old humans they don't necessarily all vibe together yeah the the anthropological elements of it often reminded me of Ursula K. Le Guin mm. um, as well as like the language stuff mm-hmm. uh, you know the stuff <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, the yeah. things Marissa likes things <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah the I agree with Marissa that not a lot of the characters, like some of the characters you start to sort of have a personality and you start to get attached to them, but a lot of them you never get that attached to. Um, also, like the dialogue, it's sort of, so in um, Aurora, that uh, mm-hmm. Kim Stanley Robinson book, like the children who grow up on the generation shift that's going to another planet, like, because of the conditions in which they grow up, they're, like, not as smart as their scientist-astronaut right. parents. Yeah. And they speak in kind of a much more simple way. And I was, I was kind of wondering if that was what was being done here on purpose. Because a lot of the characters seem to, like, talk pretty simplistically. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if that was purposeful or if she just wasn't interested in writing, like, complex dialogue. <laughs> um <laughs> like concepts and linguistics are like the first folks to make it to a place they like create like a half language like what is it a uh creole a, isn't it a pigeon oh, first, the first a pigeon, time yeah. Yeah, and then the second time like you are actually able to like have more sophisticated communication because as children you learn the like you create grammar naturally Mm-hmm. And that becomes a Creole. So it honestly, like from the linguistic side, it would seem like she wouldn't want to be doing that. I think mm. that might actually just be the way that she is able to write. <laughs> well, there's a, I mean, not to, <laughs> you know, tiny this, but um, yeah, maybe she tried to get around it by making the original expedition a lot in, totally international, and so a lot of them were English second language speakers, mm-hmm. but they chose English as the official language. Mm. Yeah, I mean, in many English many is situations. best. Sorry. <laughs> in many of the situations, there's good reason for people to be speaking more simply because they're like speaking across language barriers often 
interspecies or even interkingdom uh, right. barriers. And yeah, the first the first expedition like all learns English, and the second expedition, the second book, like everyone in North America has died for a dumb reason, so English is no longer a living language so they all learn like classic english from centuries mm-hmm. ago to be able to speak with the um the original colonists so there's good reasons why everyone in the book is often speak would be speaking in like a simplified version of their language um it just does i think sort of work against developing like a richer characterization like mm. sense of the characters because I feel like they could have dug in more, too, about how, like, in English, it's you are a human or you are a thing, but in a lot of languages on Earth now, that's not actually the way that language is, like, evoked. Like, that's not how people understand the world because of their language. That maybe it would have been a lot easier for everybody to jump on board with the plants being sentient if, like, every, if, like, like there are a lot of native languages in mm, North America right. where what we call plants and animals are given personhood. And like, mm. yeah, we describe it in English as personhood because personhood is people are the only way that we can understand value. But like how that difference might have been, I feel like they could have gone into it. I can't remember if Octavo was, was English-speaking originally. Oh, don't believe so. I think there's some reference to him. Speaking it as a second language. I I didn't look too much into it, but I'm curious to see. I mean, she is a translator. I'm curious to see what language she translates. You know what I mean? Like, just because she's a translator doesn't mean she knows everything about linguistics. <laughs> think of, if think it's of only sh- romance languages that forget about. Yeah. <laughs> but if you're writing a book about language, you'd expect, you know. As, All right, as Mar- Marissa. All right, Marissa. Why don't you go write a book about language? <laughs> yeah. Okay. No, I'm, I'm just saying, like, she did no, a lot you're of right. research into plants. Um, you're right, you're right. Yeah, there's. I think there's certain uh, more experimental avenues she could have gone down. Um, uh, for example, like, the, the pacifist language could have developed in a direction that um, talks about non-animal life in, like, a very different way because they live this life that's structured around... This sentient plant that helps their civilization. Yeah, and that's she a good ha- point. And she has the sentient plant as a narrator. Like she could have written it in a very experimental way that tried to capture what a plant would think like, like what their internal conscious grammar would be like. Um, instead, she went for something readable, which is understandable. You want to sell yeah. books? <laughs> yeah, that other that other task is very hard. <laughs> Seems like well. Sue Burke is largely a Spanish translator. There you go. That would make sense. That's what I'm finding on her Wikipedia. Oh, God, another Wikipedia corner moment? Double, double, double duty today. So, so let's talk a little bit about this more contemporary film. came out in 2019. It got a lot of uh, awards. It's an internationally co-produced drama film directed by Jessica Hausner about a woman named Alice, a single mother, a dedicated senior plant bleeder, breeder at a corporation engaged in developing new species. Against company policy, she takes one home as a gift for her teenage son, a Joe. What do you guys think, people that watched it? Yeah, as 
as we were kind of talking, I think, before we started recording, it's one of those, like, more recent horror movies that does a lot with, like, mood. Mm-hmm. Um, it's It gets a lot of creepiness out of color schemes, which I found interesting. Yeah. Like, um, the plant scientists wear this, wear just colors that are slightly wrong. Like, their lab coats are kind of Liberty Green, that yeah. shade that the Warren campaign used. <laughs> and <laughs> these other, like, earth tone pastels with it. And it's just, like, there's something, it's just off enough to make you unsettled. And, yeah, the other interior design they use, it's, like, just a little too colorful, where it's sort of unrealistic. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, the soundtrack that's not quite music, it's just, like, drumming or percussion um and then a lot of children like talking in a slightly unrealistic way incredibly unrealistic like (laughs) are they mind controlled by plant or is this just slightly off Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah it's that kind of like just off enough to wonder if things are wrong kind of slowly creeping or kind of thing yeah, it made me very uncomfortable. It kind of put me in a really bad mood for the rest of the day after I watched it. I thought it was very beautiful, really well acted, and very uncomfortable. <laughs> I think what was interesting about it is I think that that is pretty true to reality. These like very sterile, proprietary plant biology, so like plant um, modification areas are are like that. You know, like, it feels sci-fi, but, like, that's what those places are really like, um, having experience working in some of those places. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I mean, it seemed to be less about plants and more about feel it, wondering whether or not you're sane or insane because you notice that, like, your coworkers are doing something bad. It's, it's more, it's like... <laughs> Um, like everyone just acts like everything's normal. So if it must be normal, and if you don't think it's normal, you're the crazy one, right? Um, yeah, that's where the horror comes from. So, like, uh, does the main so character ever speak out about it? Or I guess that's the whole movie. If, if you're a whistleblower <laughs> at a plant lab, are you a whistleblower? <laughs> so, so she, I, <laughs> uh, so she she tries to. And the rea- the problem is, is that you can't figure out if everybody has been mind controlled by this plant, little Joe, to like mm-hmm. put down her whistleblowing because this plant. So this plant has been uh, modified to not be able to reproduce, and but the, it's a biological imperative to reproduce, and so by it subverts that by. You know, it makes everybody happy. That's the whole point of the plant. But also, it mind controls them so that they become tenders and propagators of this plant. And so, the main character is like, once she kind of, I mean, she designs this plant. But once she kind of, like, figures out what might be going on, she starts to talk about it. And everybody's like, what are you talking about? That's insane. (laughs) Like, you're being crazy. We're all fine. And you can't tell if they're all fine or not. So there's like almost like a Freudian or a psychoanalysis element to this whole movie where you can't tell if she's like hiding her true feelings for what would make her happy and then 
just finally being able to be happy at the end or if the plant made her do the things that she did to quote unquote be happy. Anyway. I thought it was cool. It's a fun movie. It feels in the tradition of, well, (laughs) the recent tradition of like single mother psychological horror films like the Babadook. Um, A lot of it is, is this horrible thing happening or is this woman crazy? (laughs) (laughs) What is that? Kevin... Some, there's something you should know about Kevin or something. Uh, like we need to talk about Kevin. We need to talk about Kevin. I haven't seen it. I think it feels like that. Yeah. There's a, a, a quote that I really liked that um, by this ethnobotanist Tim Plowman. He said, why would a plant care? Oh, so they're talking about like the secret... In being asked about the book, The Secret Life of Plants which is this book that came out in the 70s that, or 60s or 70s, that's this, like, you know, woo-woo sort of book that says that, like, plants respond to Mozart and can read your mind. Um, It was by a CIA um, polygraph expert, so, you know, a pseudoscientist. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So he says, why would a plant care about Mozart? And even if it did, why should that impress us? They can eat light. Isn't that enough? Which I think is a good... I mean, yeah, man. Like, we should start thinking about how all the cool things that plants can do that we can't do. Um, and how that that's a form oh, of intelligence. Oh, you composed a sonata? <laughs> well, I trained a bee to fly into me and pollinate my neighbor. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That was... Well, uh, like since I was a kid, one of the superpowers I wanted would be to have like a patch of chlorophyll so I could photosynthesize whenever I needed to. For yeah. some reason, I was imagined like, well, if I ever got lost in the desert, then I'd be fine. Yeah. But you'd still yeah. need water. <laughs> yeah, I didn't think through it that far. But, <laughs> yeah, the equation includes water in photosynthesis. It does. It does. <laughs> How, what is it like? What is what is that whole phrase of? Uh, Space queer feminism, like oh, scarcity. Uh, a luxury gay space communism. Fully automated luxury gay space communism. Uh, yeah, like I don't like the automated part. I want manual luxury gay. <laughs> 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 what is steampunk at that point? Um, yeah. but, but like, yeah, I mean, like post scarcity society plants. I guess they have nutrients that they have to get, but you know, we'd be so much further along if we could just eat stuff. Transhumanism conversation. Yeah, gene editing ourselves so that our skin could um, photosynthesize seems like it would come up a lot in science fiction, but it never. In this one, it kind of did, right? At some point, she's like, as one of the characters and Steve are having a conversation in semiosis where it's like, I can I can edit that in for you. Uh, Oh yeah, saying like I can. I can I can fix you like that so that you can be like me too, and I'm gonna get tears in the mouth. Oh no, not this lady again. Yep, that's right. It's Gall reminding you that if you've gotten this far in the episode and you're still wondering where all the music we talk about is, well, you're listening to a podcast, and so we had to edit it all out. But do not fret. Go to lastrefugepod.com and you'll find all the great ways that you can listen to the music that we talk about and then you'll feel fulfilled and 
your life will be complete. Okay. Thanks for coming, Marissa. You're welcome back anytime we talk about things because we know we know how much you like them. <laughs> <laughs> I love things. I love things, and I know about plants. So yeah, anytime. Uh. We'll link to some stuff on lastrefugepod.com. And uh, send us an email at thelastrefugeoftheincompetent at gmail.com with a plant. Send us a plant. (laughs) Yeah, your favorite plant, whatever it is. Mail you a plant, too. Leave us a voicemail, 805-253-3091. Actually, this is a, a genuine request, so... We will be doing a, another compilation episode soon, and if you have a recommendation... Like music only. Yeah, like music and film stuff, and then some recommendations. So if you are a knowledgeable, or not even that knowledgeable, if you have a recommendation that doesn't suck, give us a call, 805-253-3091, and we might put you on the air, if you if you want to be on the air. Oh, yeah. Sweet dreams? Alright, that's it. Sweet dreams and competeers. Science fiction.